Welcome to our special edition of Just a GP podcast, where we have Just a GP, Charlotte Hesby, working 24-7 almost to slow the pandemic throughout New South Wales and the ACT. So today what we'll be covering is what is the RACGP doing in relation to its involvement with New South Wales Health and the Department of Health at large, and we'll be looking at the specific New South Wales Health response and the New South Wales and ACT RACG response as well as a little bit from a national perspective. And what we would like to do is still maintain the normal flavour of our episodes by starting with a highlight of the week because amidst all of the uncertainty, anxiety and angst, it's useful to think about what the good things are that's happening at this stage. So I might start with you, Beck. Thank you. My highlight from the week is actually going to be a flashback to last weekend where we held our second ever wellbeing weekend as part of the New Fellows Committee for New South Wales. But specifically, my highlight from that weekend was a lecture that was given about prioritising tasks and how when you say yes to additional things, you're actually saying no to your self-care and to your time that you may have taken to do something that you enjoy. And that really hit home for me and has made me spend a little bit of time this week contemplating on what I'm saying yes to and why I'm saying yes to them and what the what that means for me and for my family. And so it's actually it was quite nice timing to decide to say no or not now to some things that I might have otherwise said yes to. I was sure you were going to say the highlight was your session with me, Beck. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Runner-up session. Runner-up, runner-up. For the listeners, the session that Beck was talking about was delivered by Nicola Holmes, who did an episode with me in one of our first episodes further back down. So if they're interested in hearing a little bit more from her, then we did some recordings earlier on. What is your, Charlotte? What are your highlights, Charlotte? Well, I just had to laugh about in, internally at Beck's with the um, the yes and the no, given that I would love to be saying no at the moment. But, you know, it's that there is just so much to be done that we're I'm just having to say yes. And definitely there's a lot else missing out for all the activity for this lovely virus, COVID-19. Now, the highlight for me was actually the, on the Wellbeing Weekend too. I got the opportunity to go and do a cheese making class. And like I've been doing a bit of cheese making at home. I really love cooking and doing things like that. But I've never actually been to a workshop. And it was so much fun. And it was all we did was ricotta. So when I say all we did, that was the cheese that we focused on, which is actually a really, really easy cheese to make. But what was wonderful was all the different things that we could do with it and we got fed them so it was just wonderful two hours of really yummy ricotta things that I can go home and actually make as one of my relaxation strategies and feel good because when I share the food I've cooked I always feel good and make other people feel good too. I should note that the cheese making section of the workshop was not eligible for CPD hours but it was included in the overall program because we, we like to have a more of a balanced program. In relation to that, Charlotte, my highlight is actually related to making food for others. This week 
one of my highlights was actually how well our practice responded to the growing epidemic in Australia. We in a regional area and so at this stage we're not in an at-risk phase but we decided to think about what it would look like in a couple of weeks' time. So we've started some policies and procedures to make our staff be a lot more comfortable with, with triaging our patients and making sure that we're keeping the waiting room safe for everybody. And it's the first time I think that our practices actually you know, all agreed that this is what we were going to do. Often with GPs, it's like hurting hurting cats and everyone's got different ideas about what was going on. So it was really great to actually see that we had a uniform approach to something. And my highlight was that the day after we first implemented what we were going to do as a practice, I made some caramel slice and put it in the tea room for all the staff and it was a salted caramel slice. And I said to everybody, just some sweetness to remember that amongst the saltiness there's always sweetness and they all really appreciated that and had a good laugh and were able to to enjoy that aspect of of the process and I got to eat lots of it too so (laughs) so Charlotte let's jump in hey yeah why don't we start with where we're at in New South Wales and and what is the RACGP doing in New South Wales and nationally to support the GPs of Australia Okay, so I mean, that's a big question just in itself. So I think we'll start by saying, why are we doing it as a state-based thing? And I think that's one of the issues that has really come out for this pandemic is that we have a public health approach that is state and territory-based, which, you know, I understand why we do because that's the the hospital's state-based healthcare system is what actually oversees the public health unit responses. But what it then means in terms of a whole Australia approach is that each one of those states and territories has a slightly different slant and approach and ability to sort of roll out a program. And as a result, we GPs who do work in a sort of a more national based approach to things get really confused because we hear all of us are doing slightly different things because we're being asked to do slightly different things in each of our states. And, you know, is that evidence-based? Is that good practice? Well, my argument would be that it isn't. And we actually do need the public health physicians to take some leadership and say we need to have one centre of advice for all of Australia that each of the states can then roll out as they see fit, but on that same basis of advice. So for instance, it means that each of the states are just they vary in who they're testing and why they're testing. In South Australia, for instance, anybody who has respiratory symptoms, if they're if the GP orders a respiratory virus panel, included into that panel will be COVID-19. In New South Wales, that's certainly not the case. And we are sticking to the guidelines that sort of are otherwise out there in terms of who it is that we deem to be at risk. And as we know, that is a changing definition. But as of today, the definition remains that all international travellers who have been back within the last 14 days who develop symptoms that may be of COVID-19 do need to be 
tested and put into self-isolation whilst they're awaiting the results. So that means, so, so we've got the epidemiological definitions, then that's that one, and the clinical symptoms. So if those two mesh, then they need to be tested. And anyone who has been in contact with a person who is diagnosed with COVID-19 and and has symptoms also requires testing. Now that's the one that has been causing the most confusion because what's been happening is a lot of people who are in contact with a person who's been in contact with are then worrying that they also need to be tested or they need to go in self-isolation. And I think really we really need to be clear, but I'll come back to that. So that those people are tested in New South Wales. All health workers regardless of whether they actually fulfil an epidemiological requirement. So in other words, they don't need to have travel and they don't need to have been in contact with a person who is known to have a COVID-19 diagnosis, who have symptoms of a respiratory type infection that align with COVID-19, also qualify for testing in New South Wales. And we have fast tracking. For anybody who is a health professional, we have a pathway that enables you to be able to get tested maybe out of hours etc and bypass some of the queues so if you don't know about that and you're in New South Wales it's it, it is worth knowing. Can I jump in there and ask how do we access that pathway? How do you access it? Well pretty much if you can I, I might come to that a little bit later if that's okay, Beck, because I think just understanding where the pathways of access for any testing is is a is a really important one because I think it's a major block. So I'll just finalise the in New South Wales, also anybody who presents with a pneumonia or a severe respiratory tract infection, even if they don't have any of the requirements that I've already said, in other words, travel and contact, also need to be tested. And again, so it's about expanding the respiratory virus panel to include COVID-19. But that's only moderate to severe, so not necessarily mild cases that we might trade in general practice, is that? Yes, that's right. So we're talking severe sort of infections that you would be maybe in, you know, on that sort of pathway of diagnosis that you may say this is a severe pneumonia that needs to go into hospital for care. They, they will be tested as well. So in New South Wales, those are the criterion at this point in time for testing. However, we do have a number of cases that are sort of clustered and with a little bit of uncertainty about where the initial infection came from. And as a result, those areas are going to be targeted by the New South Wales Health to extend the testing to try and make sure that we're not missing unexpected cases. And so later this afternoon, all the GPs in Sydney will be notified, well, all of New South Wales, as to where those clusters are and will be asked to extend their their likelihood of testing. So if they have patients and they're in that epicentre of a particular cluster, then they will be invited to do a respiratory panel of testing to ensure that we're not missing COVID-19 in those areas. So the next step is not necessarily likely to be that we're testing anybody with respiratory symptoms, but we're testing anybody with respiratory symptoms in an area of an epicentre of the outbreak. Yes, that's right. So, um, and as I said, so a map will be sent out once that 
that happens. My guess is, and talking to Dr. Kerry Chant, who's the New South Wales Chief Medical Officer, is that probably in a week, maybe sooner, who knows, then we might well be extending testing to include everybody. So GPs need to be considering that for this at this stage, we're testing contacts, any travellers with any symptoms or those with severe respiratory symptoms, and then in about a week's time, it's likely that we'll be asked to test much more people. Yes, that's right. Um, And one of the reasons for not testing more widely at the moment is, as I talked about with South Australia, there's certainly not been any evidence of picking up that many more yet. We do know that there are these cases that we're not expecting that are coming to confound us, but we're not wanting to overwhelm the testing system. And certainly in Sydney, we have been overwhelmed at two levels. The first level being the actual procurement of the test itself. And the second one is the actual provision of the test at a pathology centre. So this week, the New South Wales Health has responded to those particular blocks. I mean, there was a two-week wait at one of the collection centres. I mean, how ridiculous is that? They've been self-isolated for two weeks and then just, you know, off you go. But so they've set up four new centres, of which one is going to be piloting a drive-through system. And can I say South Australia and Victoria are both already also modelling the drive-through pathology collection centres, which is really much more time efficient and also much more efficient in terms of the PPE. And exposure to others in the line that actually may not have COVID, but there's people in the line that do have COVID spreading to the people that don't have COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, who wants to stand in a line and, you know, be potentially coughed and spluttered on by another person with a, with that infection. So yes, yeah, so the drive-through model is really good. And in fact, it's not an unreasonable model for GPs to be able to set up as well, because you are enabled to use far less of the PPE. Remember, PPE is about protecting you from the infection. It's not about protecting patients. But if you are actually not in contact with any other patients, that's the reason we have to change it between patients. Because if you have been infected on it, then you don't actually want to infect them them with your clothes. But if you're not in contact with anybody else, you can just keep it on and use the same kit as you test through a car window for somebody else. The mask is what needs to be changed regularly because they do become ineffective as they become damp which is sort of as you use it. So then it's about being sensible about how you do that. So we will be offering drive-through testing and upselling fries with that? I don't see why not. I would actually, if in Sydney, can I say, I think it would be upselling the coffee. There's certainly some of the, the self-isolation problems are all around caffeine withdrawal and not having a good barista in, in-house. <laughs> oh, yeah. maybe Nespresso is going to run out of their pods soon as well. It'll be toilet paper and Nespresso pods or yeah. That sounds good. Do you know, I actually heard uh, yesterday that there are people who are trying to return their toilet paper because they realise they bought too much and they don't have anywhere to store it. (laughs) And Woolies is saying they won't accept any returns on those items. (laughs) Who would blame them, actually? You know, if you're going to fight over the toilet paper in the first place, you you can go and find somewhere to store it. So back to Beck's question. Yes, I was hoping to find out specifically 
if I have a healthcare provider who is wanting to access the streamlined screening, is there anything I need to write on the pathology form or a specific location they need to go to or how is that actually being managed? Yes, so basically it's about knowing and how do I know? It's a now, hopefully now you do know that there will be places that will streamline it. So for instance, in my region, one of the local hospitals is providing that service so that the health professionals can just go whooshing through. So most of the hospitals will have an ability to do that. What there should be is Health Pathways is launching for really nearly everybody in New South Wales and hopefully the same around Australia with their coronavirus pathways today. And next week, most of the PHNs will have been able to localise the services page. So there is going to be a page on the coronavirus health pathways site, which actually tells you exactly where your local services are and when you can access that sort of service, including what clinics are going to be closed down and what is affected. So it's going to be a really, really useful link. So watch this space if you're a Health Pathways user. And can I say that this is a really good time if you're not a Health Pathways user, become one because Mm. they are going to be updating it daily with exactly the same source of truth that we are recommending from a college level is, is used. And on, again, just a sideways tangent, you may have noticed an email in your inbox freshly starting Thursday, the 12th of March. Every RSCGP member will get an email every day that is a coronavirus update that you will be able to trust is telling you exactly what the up-to-date this 24 hours advice is with respect to what are the epidemiological requirements for testing and what are any of the changes in terms of other recommendations that you need to do and that will be state and territory linked so you might be in west australia your email will look the same as mine in new south wales but you'll be able to reference what is relevant to you in west australia so it would be national but have some state specific information yes and territory specific so that you can be sure that when you start work first thing in the morning that you are up to date with what you are being asked to do today it'll come across your desk around about 8 p.m so you can look at it in the evening if that works for you better but just rest assured it will be the up-to-date one source of truth Can I also, at this point in time, let you know that as of Monday, the Health Direct line that we've been given as a national line for patients to ring will also start providing advice for health professionals. So if you didn't know, Health Direct at the moment, that national line that we've been given, has two lines of information. The first line is if you ring up and you're just wanting to have advice about the infection and what it means, etc. There is that's that one line of advice. If you are, however, a patient who's ringing in with symptoms, that's a second line of advice, and that line will actively be able to show people and and talk to people about whether they need to be tested, whether they need to ring their GP, etc. The third line that starts Monday will be a line that is dedicated to giving advice to all health practitioners. And again, they will be linking in with 
the advice that the RACGP is giving you in your email. So you don't need to worry that you're going to get different advice. It will be the same source, one single source of truth. And as I said, that single source of truth is dual for all of us. So we've got our national federal line of information. So that's your website. And then depending upon which state or territory you work in. Certainly in New South Wales, we're very fortunate. They update their website every single day. So that is is also a really good source of information. But again, if you want to just hone into what is important for you as a GP, that's why we're doing that link, not only the link to the website, but sort of a dissemination of what, what is important today. So that might take us into what is the RACGP doing in order to give GPs some consistent advice about policies and procedures that practice should be following in regards to reducing not just testing, which which I think practices are on board with, but reducing exposure to their patients and uh, in managing staff in amongst the outbreak. Yes. So again, we're working with the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Brendan Murphy, to make sure that the advice that we give out is in line with the advice that the department is requesting as a national response. And that is informed by public health advice. As most of us will be well aware, the strongest advice that is coming out, though, that all of us you know, really need to be preaching from every rooftop and singing from every roadway is about the self-isolation, the, the safe distancing, what do they call social distancing, and, you know, self-hygiene, washing hands between all sort of contacts on surfaces, and the being really aware of any symptoms and, and not being sort of self-sacrificial that I need to work. I mean, we're I do this all the time. I've always worked when I'm sick and I need to actually say, no, now I need to go home when I'm sick and I can do the things that I can do from home. You can say no. You can say yes to all yes, this, this no. extra stuff that you're but, doing but, on high and then say no to the practice stuff, Charlotte. Yeah. Well, do you know what's really interesting? I think that there was somebody saying, this is a really good opportunity for the whole country to go on holidays. I mean, I wish it was economically as simple and straightforward as that. But it is actually a sort of a permission for people to just say, no, actually, it is less selfish to go home and not actually potentially infect anybody else. And so does that mean we should be discouraging unwell people from attending our practices, Charlotte, and doing telehealth with those people instead? Yep. And I think that then, you know, we've got the launch today of the new Medicare items. It's just gone live as we record this sort of on the website. And it's quite a complex list of item numbers, which does include the use of telephone. So telehealth is not just video conferencing. It does include the ability to use a telephone. And that is because we really fought very hard for that telephone, can I say, because we all know that there are multiple patients that do not have access to anything that is beyond a telephone. And really, it is about appropriate access for our patients. So who are those patients? So one of the ways I'm thinking about it is that as we're just looking at normal business, our normal business is to look after all of the patients in our community. Now, we know that of the the care that we provide, there's that reactive care, there's you know, when somebody's sick, there's the preventive care, there's the chronic disease management, and then there's the palliative care for patients that we, we know are not going to be around for that much longer. 
if we then think about this at the moment, what's happening is we're being overwhelmed in the reactive space by the potential for COVID-19. But as we know, it's not just COVID-19. It is the the routine regular coughs and colds that we see all the time. And as we move into flu season, it's also going to be the influenza virus. So we're going to need to have this sort of system of being able to assess our patients and decide what it is that they may have. And as we move into the flu system, that's going to be sort of another question that we have to pull out. I won't complicate things by talking about that now but at the moment so we need to be have a system of managing that and basically those patients at this point in time unless they have another medical issue that needs to be managed need to go home and stay at home until they are no longer infective if they've got COVID-19 currently they need to have two negative PCR swabs. If they don't have a diagnosis of COVID-19, I would suggest that we continue with what normal clinical advice you would give patients as to when they are able to come back into the mainstream and communicating with people in a normal fashion again. Can I interrupt you there? Were you saying that someone who has had a positive COVID-19 test, so considered a confirmed case, to then re-enter the community, they need to have two negative swabs before they can re-enter the community. That is correct. Okay. And what's the time frame that we're thinking that the infection is around in people? This is an emerging space. I mean, we've, I think it's sort of nice to actually put it into a really concrete time frame. 13 weeks has gone past since COVID-19 was actually sort of emerged in China, which was at the end of December 2019. So we've had 13 weeks of experience. I actually think, isn't it amazing that we actually have all of this testing system and we know as much about it as we do in that 13-week time frame? It's just extraordinary. Credit to the scientists and the epidemiologists and, you know, all of those. Yeah, and everybody. And then to the collaboration worldwide, because this is this is about everybody sharing openly and very quickly the information as it comes to hand so that people can understand it and be able to sort of flex, flexibly adapt. And I think that's the really important thing and that's why these daily emails and updates are so important because it is an adaptive system that we're working in because new information is coming to hand all the time. So the answer to that question about how long someone might need to be at home for if they're infected with COVID-19 is we don't know is that? That's yes so we don't have a hundred percent surety except that it does look like it's around that 14 days. So we would be testing them when you know if we're if we've got positive cases coming through and then they're at home do we, as GPs, will we be asked to to write the pathology forms via telehealth and, and organise for them to have their negative testing before they re-enter the community? A really great question. At this point in time, all of the COVID-19 patients are being managed via the, the actual statewide public health unit team. So regardless of where they are, everybody's being managed under the same protocol. And so the responsibility for that testing and follow-up is actually at a higher level than we need to be worrying about. Obviously, if and when, but I think it's the when, the infection gets wider spread into the community, that will be devolved into our hands as GPs. My sense is, is that we will probably have more information at that point about how long it is before people can come back safely into the community and they will decrease the need for those two negative tests. 
you know, so we're using that really to help know and understand. So in terms of, you know, we've, we've spoken about if anyone's got respiratory symptoms, that's the kind of people that we should be considering managing from home. And we've spoken about healthcare workers being a slightly different population in terms of being able to have testing, even if they don't meet the epidemiological criteria. Does that include our reception staff? No, in terms of extra testing, no, no. So the reception staff don't. And and at the end of the day, realistically, the reception staff aren't in the same sort of contact that GPs and nurses are. And think about social distancing. Most reception desks will have that sort of safe social distancing between the receptionist and the patient. So even if infected patients come through the surgery, they won't be exposed in the same way that you and I are as a GP or the practice nurse or clinical assistants you might have in your practice. This is, I think, a really good time to just do a sideways thing about reassurance about this infection. Now, it is a it is a highly infectious virus. And we're sort of then, if you're looking at the figures, it's about twice as infectious as influenza. And I I think that's sort of a nice sort of sort of understanding of it. And that's why we do need to be putting in more precautions than we do with the flu. So twice as infective and about four times as infective as the common cold. But it's a droplet spread. It is not spread via the air. Measles, on the other hand, is that's four times as infective again, and it is because it is spread in the air. So you just have to walk through the surgery, sit in the waiting room, and everybody in that space is potentially infected. COVID-19 is not like that. You do actually have to have contact with virus that's in droplets of fluid, and that can be through surfaces and through actually having it obviously splattered in your face and the portals of entry are your mouth, your nose and your eyes. Hence the PPE. It's protecting you putting your hands on your clothes that have been infected by droplet spread and you then putting your hands near your mouth, your nose or your eyes. So again, hence the advice, do not touch your face. Do not shake someone's hand. Wash your hands after touching surfaces. Those are the infective thing. This virus is not a very hardy one, so it actually dies fairly quickly. It dries out on surfaces and is no longer infective. So again, a room that's sort of left, even if it did have it, it's probably not as potentially infectious, but the surfaces should be all wiped down. So in in terms of clothes, you know, we've got some... GP saying, do I need to start changing the type of clothes that I wear to work? Do I need to start coming to work in scrubs? You know, what what are we thinking about in terms of our handbags? You know, taking the the gear that we might have in the room home. Are there any some Are there any practical advice as to what to do with the general stuff that's in our in our clinic rooms as the virus starts to increase in prevalence? Again, I think this is about being sensible. I think scrubs are a really good idea. So you protect your normal everyday clothes from any potential contact that you have at work and you separate those off. So, you know, and I think that's where that that's where a white coat used to be handy, but a white coat that gets washed every day, not a white coat that gets worn regularly. And remembering, though, if you did get contact on that from someone that would then still need to be changed, which is where maybe the scrubs idea has some merit because you can go and change that more easily than your full set of clothes. 
or if you've got a smock that you wear on top, etc. I mean, that, those sorts of things are, are sensible, but certainly not mandatory and they're just being more cautious. In terms of handbags and things, I wouldn't be having your handbag anywhere near a clinical place. Hopefully go and find a safe sort of lock-up space that isn't in potential contact anyway so that you've got that and you wash your hands between patients, between contacts of, of surfaces. So then those sort of objects don't become contaminated as potentially contaminated as well. Does, does that all make sense? Yes. What about... Those of us who don't have scrubs, what are some other options if we're not in full PPE with a known COVID contact and we're in this early phase? What are some other things that we can do? Well, maybe again, if you think about wearing as a woman pants and a, a top and having a couple of spare tops to change into and having something that you can then wear home and those get, those clothes get washed in the evening. It's unlikely that you're your legs are in the firing range it's you know again being sensible it's much more likely that it's you know your your chest your arms sort of area that might be a sort of a sensible approach certainly I don't think needed yet but once as you say we're moving into maybe more people who who might be coming through the surgery because they need to actually have clinical assessment because they're unwell and this is where they're going to be managed then those are some strategies you can use and what's happening with PPE? Well, as we know, it's all about access to it. The government has ordered 54 million extra masks. The The problem with the masks is that the manufacturing centre internationally for everybody was Wuhan and the Chinese sh- shut all of that manufacturing down. They are just starting to open it back up again now, but certainly found it fascinating that nowhere else in the world really did very much manufacturing of masks. So that's been the issue with the supply chain block. And although our government said that they had, you know, masses, it's like anything. You don't realise you're going to have bushfires that you're going to then be dishing out masks for and then need those masks very shortly after that for a pandemic. And so the supplies of that were were not enough. And then the added problem about this whole supply chain the supply was gone too and so it's sort of like that worst case scenario went off all at the same time so the 54 million are on order there are some in there they obviously have distributed a large number out into the general practice setting not enough as all of us are saying nowhere near enough and that's really again one of the reasons why I've been recommending that GPs don't do collection of swabs if they don't need to because they don't have any other collection centre options because there is such a shortage of it and you will be needing it for the ability to safely clinically manage patients down the track rather than from my perspective wasting it on testing in a very I mean it really it uses up a whole lot more kit than needs to be when we do it in general practice those drive-through models are just great because they're much less needing in terms of you know you can kit a person out with the clothes and the mask for the whole day and and just change the mask as needed yeah I really like the idea of the drive-through models as much as I joke about having having fries and coffee with that. I think it's a a really great model and it seems to have worked somewhat for South Korea in terms of curbing their their outbreak as well, being able to test quite a lot of people in in a short space of time. South Australia is also doing a domiciliary home collection service. And then there's also the option of self-collection. I understand that 
Douglas Hanley Moyer is doing a pilot research project looking at is a self-collection as good as a collector collection and that will be really interesting when that comes out because if we can do self-collection that will make things like those if they still do require people to have two negative tests at the end then the patient can potentially do them themselves. So the best way that general practices can look at reducing their infection rates within their practices is to try and avoid seeing people with respiratory type symptoms and instead do telehealth phone triage and some sort of system where they're able to monitor that coming for people coming into the practice. Yep. So I'll just give, do you mind if I give a bit of an update about what we started doing, even though we're in a regional area with no outbreak yet? Please, that'd be fantastic. So we have anybody who books over the phone, goes through screening questions, have you travelled, do you have any respiratory symptoms? If they answer yes to any of those questions, then the doctor who they are booking the appointment with rings them and does a further triage and the receptionist sends a message and then they get blocked at the door if they haven't been triaged in time. At the at the door, we have, we're giving out green cards and I think we're going to change that to green stickers where people that haven't, haven't travelled and haven't got respiratory symptoms will be able to get a green sticker and they're allowed to enter in the practice and anybody else needs to go back in their car or um, in one of our practices, it's quite a fair way from many other areas. So they're, they're allowed to wait outside away from other people and they have to be triaged before being allowed in. If they get a red, they are in any of the testing criteria, then they actually get sent home and, and then we, we triage them from there. And we decided to do this early in, in the scheme because we knew that it was likely to escalate quickly where we're going to have to be doing this within the space of weeks. And it's been really useful for our staff to get used to it while the risk is low. And can I say the patients attending our practice have actually been really reassured that when they come in that it it seems to be a safe place. And, I mean, we ran out of masks quite quickly. So we we were allocated uh, 50 masks for one of our practices and I think we got two boxes of 50 masks for the other practice and you know that's really not enough when you're looking at 20 doctors between two practices so that's kind of how we've done it. Yeah look I think that's fantastic and in fact um, I shared that model with a group of 80 GPs last night Ash and I think there was a lot of people who thought what a great idea I also like the idea that there was sort of a potential for double triaging if you ask the questions when every patient's ringing in anyway they're prepared for the questions and then you do a double check when before they come through the door because you know there's going to be some who are missed and then you have the making sure that they haven't snuck through the door having been missed for some other reason by them not having a green sticker on. Mm. Um, I just think that that's just really lovely. And um, as you say, the patients appreciate it because they know that, I mean, I've got, you know, lots of patients who are really worried about coming into the doctor because they don't want to get sick in the surgery. So they can have an assurance that it's a safe place. Yes. And the useful thing that we realised is it was we tried on the first day without doing a traffic light system and it was too hard. We just had too many people hanging around at the desk and so the person at the front door isn't checking names, isn't checking their status. They're literally doing a triage at the door and they're giving out the cards and so it's they're not having to then communicate with the front desk about these are the people who I've screened. It's literally a yes, no, yes, no, go home. And um, and it, it's been working really well. We've got a pharmacy that borders 
the entry to our practice. And we've also got a pathology provider that is in the practice and we have some allied health and everybody in the building agreed that they're happy to to follow the triage process and we've actually set up a barrier between the pharmacy and the clinic so that people going into the pharmacy to potentially get paracetamol or nurofen or cough syrup although it's not recommended in the common cold that you even need cough syrup then they're not actually then coming into the outside of the practice to contaminate the area. The person who you've got doing the triaging on the front door, are they wearing PPE? Not at this stage. Uh, We have spoken about it and we kind of figured that the time that they would be in contact with the person is very minimal and the distance is, is, is not too close either so the time it takes to ask person someone have you traveled do you have any you know cold cough flu symptoms is in the space of 10 seconds so it it doesn't actually take that long but perhaps and and because we know that we don't have any cases locally we have been a little bit more lax with that but perhaps as as that changes we may put that person in ppe so on to that, Charlotte, I know that we've got the outbreak that's happening in Sydney. So a lot of the rest of Australia outside Sydney is starting to get concerned about, well, what's happening because we have, we have less ICU beds, we have less hospital beds, we have less testing facilities. And does the advice differ in regional Australia? Are we expected to see a slightly different pattern in regional Australia or rural Australia? And how are we targeting our most vulnerable populations, such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients and our refugee populations? Great questions. One of the interesting phenomenon of this infection is that the whole social distancing thing is protective. So that's where Australia has a big advantage over a lot of other countries and where rural Australia has the biggest advantage. So there is a lot more distance and less opportunity to have mass gatherings or be crowded out. And so therefore the risk of the infection sort of taking hold in the way that it does in cities is far less. So I think there's a lot to be reassured about that. And I think if the rural communities actually really take hold of that, then they can actually remain as infection free as possible. Maybe this will solve the rural doctor's crisis. <laughs> this is this is the time to go out and be the rural doctor. Absolutely. Much safer than being in the city with those nasty crowded viruses. But again, it's about then, you know, making use of that as your vehicle to provide good safe care for patients. And I think that, you know, and then using that too about how you manage it in the rural setting is to make it, yeah, again, you know, really encourage people to just to keep their distance and to do things in the way. I mean, the running of the GP practice itself is no different. There's still all of those crowds. We still therefore need to manage flows. And this then again flows into that whole new Medicare item number, which we sort of started on when I was sort of talking about we've got those two ways that we we sort of deliver care in general practice in terms of the reactive. And so we're being overwhelmed by that COVID-19 thought at the moment. And as I sort of mentioned, we've got the flu coming. But then, so how do we look after chronic disease patients? And, you know, a bit of that, and do we throw any preventive care in there? Well, I think in the preventive care, we've got our pregnant patients that really they're, they're well. The care that we deliver to them is about preventing you know picking up anything that might go wrong so certainly that needs to be included. Can you tell us a little bit about 
the item numbers, who is eligible and how we might be able to reorientate the care that we deliver with the item numbers? Great question. So the new item numbers, uh, there are sort of two streams. One is about the triaging and one is about being able to manage patients during this COVID-19 epidemic. So if I move to, I'll move straight to the one that's about managing patients during the COVID-19 epidemic because I think this is really important. This is about how we can A, maintain normal business and make sure that our normal patients' care doesn't suffer in the face of us having to manage the epidemic. So the item number as it stands is for all patients who are aged over 70, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients aged over the age of 50, all pregnant patients and all patients with a chronic disease. So that does actually sort of cover, so they're sort of saying already under the treatment for chronic health conditions or as immunocompromised. It also actually, and add this one in, is, a, is for anyone who's a parent of a child under 12 months. So what it's acknowledging is that there will be a number of people that we need to see and look after for, as I said, the reasons of being prevention of anything going wrong and that chronic disease management sort of issue. But it, particularly for the 70 and over, recognising that the people who are most vulnerable to this infection are those as they get older. I'll just do a sneaky sideways. I learnt last night that the reason why it's an illness that gets worse as you get older is due to the production of cytokines. So what happens with this virus is that it actually, the immune response to it means that we produce cytokines. Now, young children don't do this very well, and so they don't produce many of them, so they don't get nearly as sick. The older we get, the better we get at producing cytokines and the more symptoms. And then onto that, so therefore the older you are, the more cytokines and the sicker you potentially will become with it. Then if you have a comorbidity, so if you actually have other illnesses, you potentially make even more and or you're even more sort of reactive to the this sort of the end point of what those cytokines are doing. So that's why people with comorbidities are also increased susceptibility to this virus. So it's the inflammatory response, not just the infection itself. Yeah, that's right. And that sort of then makes sense for me about why children and babies aren't getting sick in the same way, but they are getting infected with it. A big question there is, so why do they close schools? And I kind of know the answer, and that's because children can be the vectors which then bring it to the people who can be more unwell. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. And it, they're, they're so good at spreading it that you then very, very quickly disseminate it broadly into the community and then they take it into their homes and spread it very rapidly to the much more vulnerable. And their elderly grandparents who might have the capacity to look after them. That's right. And who would otherwise have not gone out into the community and been in, been infected at all. So what we, our responsibility with this particular item number is actually knowing who those patients are. So with your database of your electronic medical records, it's about being able to say, okay, who fits those categories? So you can already pull out all of those patients who are at least 70 years old. So 70 and older, pull out all those patients who are, are happy to be be identified as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are 50 years and over, anybody who's pregnant, anyone who's got a chronic disease, and you've got your cohort of patients to whom you can offer immediately a telehealth consultation instead of a face-to-face -face in the first place. What's the definition of chronic disease? 
Well, there is no definition there, so it says a chronic health condition. So you would con- you would consider that you might use the same criteria that you use for a chronic disease management plan. Yep, absolutely. But not necessarily restricted to only those with chronic disease management plans. If you've got someone with a chronic health condition that's not on a chronic disease management plan, you could still telehealth. Yeah, so for instance, someone with asthma who hasn't needed a chronic disease management plan because they've got an asthma plan already, they have a an illness that, you know, we would think is likely to be worse if they get the this virus. And so again, we would want to keep them out of the surgery if we can. In relation to that, we should highlight that the face-to-face item numbers cannot be billed during the telehealth consultation. No, that's right. Yep. And that the telehealth items have to be bulk billed. That's in the item descriptor. Yes. So it does say that they need to be bulk billed. My understanding is that's still under negotiation, so may change. So part of what the ROCGP is doing is is talking with Governor about potentially being more flexible with that item descriptor? Yes, yes. And recognising that the in order to, again, facilitate GPs being able to provide an appropriate service to all of their patients, that bulk billing everybody is not necessarily the model of care that is required. Are there any other things that the RACGP is in discussion with about the telehealth item numbers that for the people that it doesn't cover that we think it should cover? Look, I think what the what we've been trying very much to do is to try and ensure that everybody is provided with the best care possible and that we abide by all of the absolutely sensible recognition of what needs to happen for this epidemic, which is keeping sick people away from anyone who isn't sick and in particular those people who are more vulnerable. So we've been campaigning very hard to make sure that that happens at the same time as making sure that we GPs who are in that firing line are appropriately remunerated for the care that we're delivering. That's always hard because government wants to give as little money as possible and this is I think a big win for us to have these um, telehealth items out. The biggest win that we achieved was getting telephone as well as telehealth. So if you look at the item descriptors, you'll see that there is a separate item number for these for patients as a phone attendance versus as a telehealth attendance. And that was a bit of a a fight to get, but we got that. The next fight that we're really trying to do is to extend the triaging to be a little bit more flexible to be able to sort of cover off what needs to happen in terms of the triaging but that that's another conversation in terms of the patients that need to be managed like that I think that most people would agree that it covers the majority of people that we would want to keep out of the surgery I'm happy to take advice from anybody who's listening who can actually tell me how it can be improved further because sometimes when you're too close to the coal face of of those discussions you can sort of forget other things and you need to be broadened. So please, any ideas, throw them at us. And we are certainly going in there and fighting hard for an improved system of care. So people can contact us on justagppodcast at gmail.com. How how can they contact the RACGP and yourself, Charlotte? Email me directly on my RACGP um, email, which is charlotte.hespie at racgp.org.au. And Harry, as president, is, is contactable on president at racgp.org.au. 
And he's been doing an amazing job of just getting in there and being really hardline about what it is that is needed in terms of managing this pandemic in the Australian setting. So potentially what we can be looking is looking at our audit software to start to flag patient files. We may be able to have some lists for our receptionists and in terms of checklists and offering whether people would prefer to have a telehealth consultation than a face-to-face consultation. And we'll need to be looking at potentially rooms that have availability for video conferencing and for those rooms that don't having the the telephone available. And the second thing would be making sure that the item descriptors are met. So setting up the checklists in, in terms of autofill so that the provider's actually documenting in line with what's required for the item number. Yeah, so basically you need to document any of these telephone or telehealth consultations in exactly the same way that you would be documenting a normal clinical consultation. So it's really important that that gets done. What you really need to do is actually sit down and think about the system of care that you wish to do through your clinic. So that might be that you actually run a whole clinic in the morning that is totally telehealth slash telephone and that also all patients get booked into that particular clinic or you may choose to do a flexible option and it's just per patient and you just take normal appointments and they're either in person or in telephone. The other option is obviously as we might get be getting doctors who are having to go into isolation themselves, they feel well and they're happy to help, they may also be able to be set up as running those remote telephone consultations and or telehealth from a home setting themselves so that you can still maintain some of your manpower in your practice while still being totally sensible about who and who can actually do face-to-face work. So will they use their existing practice provider number then? They will be able to use their existing practice provider number as long as they're using it through your software and it doesn't matter if they're sitting in, my understanding is it doesn't matter if they're working from home as long as they're working through your location. Software. Yep. In the same way that you would visit an aged care facility under your practice's provider number, not the aged care facility provider yes, number. Yes, exactly. The other one was about 12 months of seeing that provider. Is that going to be flexible in terms of the clinic or the specific provider for that patient? My understanding is that they've been to the practice. But there'll be further clarification potentially on that? Yes. And thank you for raising that, Ash, because that's actually another one of the ones that we've been trying very hard to get rid of because I don't think it's fair that people are being prejudiced by because under the Australian Constitution, we do all have a right to choose who we see when we we choose to. And just because I'm choosing to go to you now and I'm unable to attend your service because I've got a chronic disease and I don't want to run the risk of getting COVID-19, should not mean that I can't access that service. Under the provision, obviously, if I go once face-to-face, then I should be able to qualify for it. But, you know, is that fair if you, you know, means that I'm actually potentially at risk attending? I mean, there's all sorts of arguments you can make about it, but it would be lovely if we could drop that particular requirement. But how it stands at the moment is your patient needs to have been at the practice for you to be able to access the item numbers. In the last 12 months, yes. The nice thing about it is that it also does include specialists, physicians, nurse practitioners. So we can actually get people who have a nurse practitioner qualification to do them as well. And there's also mental health attendances. So, and specifically 
sort of out there in terms of so if you're seeing a patient regularly for for counseling it now gives you the opportunity to do that as a remote consultation rather than them having to come in and be exposed to sort of acutely unwell medically you know viruses virus to patients so should we start doing this now like should we start actually implementing the procedures and the policies to do this quite easily now so that when it starts to become more of an issue in terms of social distancing as more people are infected that it's actually easier well that's what i'd recommend because we're not used to this this is a different mode of delivery most of us have always done things face to face there's obviously a lot of rural practitioners who've used the telehealth for for some of their work but I don't know anyone who does it for you know the majority of their work so and and I stand corrected because I'm sure there is somebody out there who does but certainly as an urban practitioner and in Sydney that's where you know as it is the hot center at the moment for all of Australia if we look at well, what does that look like? How do I need to redesign what my clinic is doing? How do I need to relook at my appointment systems? And then importantly, as a clinician, when do I say after doing one of these consultations, I actually need you to come in? And then what am I, how am I going to set it up so that you don't feel vulnerable? Which again, goes back to that thing about being able to wait in the car and be you know, just walked through the surgery into the room and make sure that the room is, as it should be for every single person, clean and not potentially infective. And would that be a better option than going and visiting that person at home in terms of the exposure for the provider to the surfaces? Well, yes and no. I actually think if, you know, our rooms are not unsafe, it's about trying to minimise the times that they actually come through it. So realistically, it's I don't think that them coming in occasionally is a bad thing. What is bad is those long waiting times in the, the waiting room. don't know about you, but I've got lots of socialised patients. I'm more thinking about the healthcare practitioner. So if the healthcare practitioner is going into somebody's house is that would they would that healthcare practitioner think about wearing PPE depending on the clinical situation? Yeah, well, we're going to have to think through all of that, aren't we? So we don't know who are the other household members and what else is going on. So that's why I mean, personally, I always think that actually clinically assessing a patient in a setup consultation room is better than in a home environment always or a nursing home environment, but that is not always the ideal you know I mean that's not what's available and you have to actually do what's best for the patient so those will be flexible and you just have to think through each scenario and what you want to do in that respect I mean one of these things is that it is an evolving space and we've got to be thinking about it I mean today apart from doing this we're trying to set down exactly some of these protocols about the risk stratification of our patients so who is it that I can safely advise to go and be managed at home with their COVID-19 what is then the protocol of care that I'm going to do for that COVID-19 patient how often am I going to make contact with them and what does that look like and when do I then escalate them up to saying actually I think now you are more moderate risk and i I want you to be assessed either clinically here with me or in a clinic that the hospital is providing for this purpose or when do I need to refer you to hospital and what are those sort of parameters and how comfortable do I feel about doing that consultation over the phone versus being able to see them face to face? What what does that look like? So when will we see something coming 
in terms of a national guide for GPs so that we don't all come up with our own policies and procedures in in that regard? Look, I'm sure everybody's going to adapt them. You mentioned that we're that we're all like herding cats and that's the joy of GPs actually is that everybody has a fantastic brain and everybody comes up with great ideas and innovations and I would encourage that completely and and all the time but what we're hoping to do is to have some general guidelines to help everybody know how to navigate this new space as quickly as possible. My goal is that we'll certainly have those sort of resources out by next week and as they keep coming up we'll we'll alert them onto the website as to what we've got. I know that the RACGP National has started to transfer face-to-face meetings to teleconferences certainly the rec meetings that I'll be chairing later in May have been changed to teleconference and so what should we be doing in terms of our workshops meetings conferences and domestic travel? Great question. So I think if you look again at the evidence behind how this virus spreads, it's about the droplet spirit. It's about, therefore, that the best you know, options are about social distancing and social isolation and good hygiene habits. So if you put that into the context of meetings, most meetings will be fine because you've got enough distance between you and the other participants and, you know, you can... You can have control over how you manage your own space and your hygiene. If you're not well, um, you just don't attend. But everybody else who's well can quite safely and comfortably attend a meeting. Where it gets trickier is when those meetings get big enough that you then have the sort of the more crowding as you move in or out of a venue and then those sort of more less sort of controlled social interaction times and the way in which you get yourself to the meeting. So whether that be by needs to be by aeroplane and again that you've got less control over waiting in, you know, airport lounges and who you're sitting next to on an aeroplane. So those are the the sort of things that I would use to guide about the wiseness or otherwise of attending a face-to-face meeting versus being remote, you know, being on video conference. Because quite honestly, my experience of meetings is face-to-face is generally a more productive meeting because it's an you know you you get body language you get a little bit more of that sort of social relationship and you're able to sort of interact better video conferencing however is fantastic i've used that in a lot of context over a number of years now and done well it's really fine and so that may well be completely appropriate to use i think it's each meeting that you need to assess and what it is you're wanting to achieve from that meeting. And as I said, thinking about the control that you have as an individual over the getting there the and then the social times around the meeting itself. Does that all make sense? Yeah. You've said the word social distancing a few times. I was wondering if you could just specifically say what that means. So Um, My understanding is there's a certain distance that then would classify as being social distancing and just if we could spend a bit of time describing what that meant. My understanding of it is that it is basically the sort of one and a half metres that you sort of need between people to not be in the firing range, so to speak. 
which is why for most receptionists, the space between where they sit on the other side of their computer, plus the desk width, plus where a normal patient would be standing on the other side of the desk would potentially be that 1.5 metres. Yes, if people are touching them again, it's like I was at my gym this morning and they hand me keys for my lockers and then I hand them back to them. And I sort of, it's really funny because I actually gave them a sort of a bit of a chat about, so they've got the hand wipe, but it's around the corner and out of vision. There's no signs up saying, as you enter, please wipe your hands. And nor is there any messaging all around the equipment to say, wipe it down after you've used it. So, you know, a, a lot of this sort of needs to be up play, you know, upskilled or a whole community. And I think that probably we're in a great position to be, A, as we think about how it relates to what we're doing in our practice, but then relates to what we actually do on a day-to-day basis and help our friends um, and those around us know how to manage it. And certainly at our practice, we have put a hold on online booking so that we can triage people a little bit more effectively rather than having to ring everybody who's booked online. So we've we've considered the roots of how people actually connect with our practice as a way of triaging. We've thought about what we're going to do in terms of the surfaces, depending on what's happening in the outbreak in our community. So we'll be looking at removing magazines from the waiting room so people aren't handling things that other people have handled and also the the surfaces around the reception as well as the actual check-in and we've also got elevators so we've thought about what we need to do in terms of handrails and elevators so once we're we're starting to think about the practice as a potential environment for the the contact spread and as the epidemic unfolds, we're thinking about how we're actually going to deal with those things. And I'm hopeful, Charlotte, that that will be in some of the information that will go out to practices about th- about how to clean the spaces and what sorts of things to do with the spaces. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of stuff that um, is sort of coming out from, uh, I think, all of this as we come in terms of what products. And, uh, you know, so again, it's don't... We, we, we shouldn't be reinventing wheels. We should just um, try and uh, sort of use what's there. Very interesting. I've just looked at a whole lot of um, articles and no one's committed to anything. They're really more talking about the, the social distancing as a general thing in terms of that keeping yourself away from other people is the thing that slows down the spread of any of these things but no one's committed to any particular distance so the one and a half meters that I quoted was what an infectious diseases expert told me is the distance that you um, can feel safely away from someone if they coughed um, and sneezed without cover Um, and so your worst case scenario of how close you would need to be to be infected to, to have that droplet come to you. I remember last year when I had upper respiratory tract infection, I I know exactly the patient that gave it to me. I was examining a little child on their mum's lap and the kid turned towards me and just coughed in my face. (laughs) You know, within a week I was sick with the same thing. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's awful, isn't it, when you have that happen? You go, oh, no, done. (laughs) I was hoping we could talk about some specific practice things so specifically um so i'm in sydney so if i did happen to have a patient who bypassed all of our wonderful triage systems and be in the practice with a 
positive swab retrospectively, what would have to happen to the staff um, and to the practice? Okay, so you're asking a question about the patient who comes into the surgery and is actively infected with um, COVID, well, has COVID-19 without you having realised, and they've been sitting in the waiting room. Yeah. How long have they been sitting in the waiting room for? Worst case scenario, um, 20 minutes, so an appointment time. Okay. So if they've been, okay, so the, the guidelines at this point in time are more than 15 minutes. So if they've been sitting in the waiting room for more than 15 minutes, then you have potentially um, exposed the people that are in that closer proximity to them during that time. So so they're important. The receptionists are probably mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> um, and we're being, I'm talking pragmatically at this point in time, because we know that um, medical practices that have had this scenario happen get closed have been being closed down for two yep. weeks okay so the worst case scenario is the practice has to shut down for two weeks and the best case scenario is they entered the building really quickly only spent five to ten minutes in the doctor's room before leaving again rather than actually sort of really thinking through as I said the true epidemiology of this virus and a part of that is because we want to try and make sure we understand but we also want to minimize the risk to anybody um, while we're we're in this sort of active containment phase but realistically it's the people who are sitting closest to them and then again it will depend upon how long they sat with you in the surgery as to how long your potential exposure is and what actually happened in that interaction as to what your likely exposure is so the shorter the time the better and the sooner you instituted PPE and other measures then the less likely it is that they spread it as I said it's not a hugely infectious does it, you know, illness, but it is twice as infectious as the flu. So, I mean, at this point in time, as it said, we're being ultra cautious. So everybody's being treated far more um, vociferously and aggressively than we will probably be doing down the track when there's more people, more and more people who are actually infected. Can you explain why that is? Because I think that's useful for people to understand. We may probably have more than doctors listening to the podcast. So can you explain as to why we're being really careful now when it may be that as the infection spreads, we'd be less careful about those sorts of shutdowns? Well, it's not so much that we're going to be less careful. It's that at the moment, we're really, really trying very hard at containment. And so the more aggressive the containment measures, the the more likely we are to be to, to to not have any slipping through um, our fingers. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by slipping through the fingers, as in people who are positive that we're not identifying as positive? In terms of this particular scenario is that when we've identified a case that we're trying to make sure that we pick up absolutely everybody and we prevent any risk of then it spreading further into the community. And so why are we trying to do that now? Okay, so this is all the theory about um, flattening the curve. So... The flatter the curve, the more likely we are to be able to actually deal with the numbers through as they sort of emerge with infection. Remembering that the likelihood is, is well, the, the number that Kerry Chant has quoted at me is 20% of New South Wales will will get infected with it. So if we're talking 20% of New South Wales, we want that 20% to happen as slowly as possible. 
um, within that sort of bell curve so that we can actually have the ICU facilities for those people who do get very sick um, and that we can actually try and keep people safe. Because if you go out into the community and you really have no idea that every single person around you is potentially infectious, then you're far more likely to get infectious. Whereas if we've contained it and you're, it's much more likely that everybody around you hasn't got the infection, then we can sort of maintain normal business in a better way. I mean, look at Italy. It's a great example of what you don't do. They really ignored all of the the sort of the pre-signs. They did nothing to stop anybody coming into their country. So they actually had a, a lot of people coming from the original source. And then it just, without any monitoring, people had there was lots of colds and flus being um, presented and really quite unwell people before they actually um, raised their heads and started testing and went, oh my goodness, we've actually got a problem. And now, now this is a really interesting ethical dilemma, they are actually so short of ICU facilities that they are making decisions about people as to whether how actively they're going to treat them. The older you are, the less likely you are to be provided with um, an ICU bed, for instance. Now, we don't want that to ever, I mean, it would never happen in Australia anyway, but we don't want that to be the discussion. We want to make sure that everybody who's sick gets the appropriate care that they deserve as an Australian, not made on the basis of we don't have, the, you know, we can't, we can't treat you, so go home. So what advice should we be talking about with our patients who are at risk and should we be having advanced care planning discussions with those that we deem to be the most at risk? It's a really good time to have those discussions. Might not be a particularly well received, but I think it's really important. You know, you've got your 88-year-old patient and you say, look, you know, if you did were to get COVID-19, what do you want? Do you, do you want to be admitted to ICU and be intubated or do you want to be supported um, and see whether you are able to pull through the infection without being assisted in terms of you know what how much assistance will you want for this infection and should we be advising those patients we identify as higher risk to be much more careful in terms of social distancing spending more time you know in uh away from highly populated areas, more time at home or out in nature away Absolutely. from the humans. And I've already been doing that. And again, that's where the advantage of you doing that search, pulling out those people that we deem to be higher risk is actually having those conversations. You know, if you can work from home at an earlier, you know, time frame, go and do it. You know, um, have that conversation with your boss and set up a system so that you have to interact with others as little as possible. If you're not working, you know, d don't go to the pub um, and have your Friday evening beer that you used to do regularly when you're, you know, surrounded by crowds and everybody's getting a bit jovial. Um, as nice as that is, that's just what needs to be cut out of the, the social calendar for the next little while. So with the social isolation and social distancing, can we also now just touch on clearance certificates? Because the requests for clearance certificates have skyrocketed and we've well, I've typically done them for children who have been unwell and are now cleared to return to daycares at the insistence of some of our local daycares. But um, particularly in Sydney, the requests are coming in thick and fast for workplaces. 
Okay, so yes, and it's and it's very difficult. Um, I think what you can, I think it's really important that you can say that they have no, you know, from my clinical review, they have no evidence of any you know, ongoing symptoms, for instance, and they have not qualified for COVID-19 testing. And we're going to try and push that, you know, because those kids don't qualify for it. So that, you know, because some employers are, in, are insisting on someone coming back with a negative COVID-19, you know, that and that's ridiculous because if they don't qualify for it, then they shouldn't be being tested at the moment. And down the track, we, we're going to try and probably test less people as well because we otherwise be completely swamped and it's just it'll be about managing them safely and hopefully we'll have better guidelines by that time you know this is an emerging space we'll have better guidelines and a better understanding of who and when and how we can do those certificates but in the meantime you just have to say what you can say and be very clear about this is what I'm saying. We can do that via telehealth if ideally. Yes. And or otherwise yep. patients can do a stat deck. Yes, so they can do a stat deck. I mean, and that's what you can say is that I've assessed this patient via telephone. Um, and as far as I can tell, they have no, there is no reason for them not to be able to return to work and they do not qualify for COVID-19 testing, for instance. Or you can say they've got, you know, I mean, you, you say what is relevant for that patient, but I would put your caveat on about why you might not be testing them. It's $150 if they don't qualify for um, the testing. So, But that's useful to know. So people who want to be tested even though they don't qualify can pay for the test. But just remember it might be a false reassurance. It's a bit like doing a pregnancy test and getting it back negative. Or you've actually got symptoms. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's useful to, to educate our patients about is before you've got symptoms, you could potentially have a negative test and so it's not, it's not useful to do it. If you've had a contact, you can, if you've had a contact, you need to socially isolate, go into quarantine yep. and only test if you have symptoms. What about people who've travelled that don't have symptoms? Should we be delaying their appointments for two weeks as well, Charlotte? No, because at the moment they're just a, um, you know, if they haven't travelled to a, a, what we deem as a high-risk country at the moment, then they don't need to be isolated. They they should be practising sort of some social distancing. But if they need to be seen, they need to be seen. If it's something that really, you know, is, isn't necessary. But they're not infectious if they've got no symptoms. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about someone being at risk for monitoring and trying not to have much contact with people while they wait and see whether they are going to get an infection they're not infectious to you while they've got you know at that at that point in time and you just are sensible and if they need to be seen you know then then fair enough I know that some of the people you know get worried about the the idea of the asymptomatic shedder but again if you're doing proper sort of care of you know of what you're doing your risk at that point is we we probably would know that they're infectivity is extraordinarily low again if they don't provide droplets to you does that make sense yeah you know if they've traveled and they don't have symptoms it's it's probably okay to see them if they don't need to be seen but you could reasonably say look come in two weeks if you want to come in for a pap smear or sorry a cervical screening test or a skin check that's Um, right so put it off to being a time that's re you know much more reasonable So what should our recommendations be for our staff members who are immunosuppressed or pregnant or have one of those high-risk medical conditions? 
so again, it's about what, what are they doing in your practice and how far in the firing line are they? And if there is a job that they can do that is less in line with patient contact, then I would probably be seeing if you can do that. So for instance, we have reception staff who spend most of the day in the scanning room doing all the scanning of the documents So and taking phone calls um, away from the actual reception desk. So can you actually you know, redo some of your tasks to accommodate their particular circumstances. Pregnancy, we don't know very much yet. So it's a bit of an unknown space, but so far the evidence is there is there is no reason to think that there is going to be a problem for anybody who is pregnant. So Charlotte, we spoke a little bit about what how doctors can work from home via telehealth. And we also spoke a little bit about how people working in other businesses might be able to work from home. What about our nurses and our reception staff? How do we facilitate them working from home? Well, that may be a bit trickier. Having said that, it may be a great opportunity to do some of your database and sort of po- sort of population health work and start being a little bit innovative in some quality improvement projects where you start doing some tidying up of um, the diagnoses and codings and set up some um, particular patient health populations. This would obviously require them to have access to your um, software at home, but I know most practices would would actually access their doctor's um, remote access. So maybe this is a good opportunity to also give that to your nurse or a high sort of functioning admin reception staff who can actually start doing some of this work that is otherwise always the, if we have time, we'll do it job. Or we could look at uh, policies and procedure writing potentially, and and your accreditation paperwork yeah so even as the as the covid develops you could have your your staff at home um you could allocate them reading through the bulletins that are coming through and suggesting how it might be implemented in the practice assisting them to do the the policy writing and discussions with how it might actually roll out amongst the practice and or they could yeah like you said do accreditation work for if the accreditation cycle is coming up Yep, it's, I mean, exactly. It's sort of about going, okay, well, this is an unexpected opportunity of no, not being interrupted by patients or other things. These are some jobs that have been sitting on the, if I, if only I had time to, and off you go. So for the patients who have knowingly had a contact or have come back just from their wonderful travel to Japan and have their runny nose and ignore all of the signs on the way into the practice about stopping and not gaining entry, what can we do once they're in the practice? Is there any way that we can not not see them or ban them from the practice or do we need to be notifying public health about them or what do we do about those patients? Well, they're... they're... <laughs> Well, they obviously need testing. So the, the minute you realise that this is the case, you need to apply the appropriate PPE, give them a mask, put them into isolation and then organise for them to be sent, either do the testing yourself and send them home for social isolation. Then you need to think through the consequences of where they've been, who they've been in contact with and depending on them coming back positive the as to whether the, the clinic at, 
as at this point in time gets closed down or not. Um, but it doesn't have to be closed down until you actually have a positive test. And devil's advocate, if they refuse testing, is there an avenue for either um, somebody forcibly making them have the test or for them having to be isolated? Okay, so this is where uh, that pandemic sort of government, I'm losing my words, what, whatever it is, has come into action. So, yes, mm. this is where we have the power of saying this person is potentially infected and needs to be tested and you can pull that into um, action. Now, hopefully no one that will need to do that, but if need be, I would be contacting the public health unit to um, actually report them and ask them what to do next and seek advice so that at no time are you in the firing range of an aggressive response but instead it's it's handed over to the higher um, bureaucratic levels to deal with. I feel like we're at the end is there anything that you feel like we haven't covered Charlotte that you really wanted to say? Look I think the, the important message from my perspective is this is a changing space so the advice that we give today may change for some things tomorrow so it's it is a matter of sort of keeping on top of things but by and large the basics and the foundations are all absolutely the same the most confusion that I think people are having at the moment is being able to understand the context of the context and who is actually at risk of infection and you know and and that's hard and so there's been some false advice been put out and people who have been put into isolation who don't need to and we have had a tendency to be far too conservative and I think that's better than not being conservative enough um, but we do need to be mindful if we're telling people that they can't work that those that does have big implications and so you know seek advice before saying someone has to be isolated for 14 days that you're actually um, giving them the correct advice and and listen out when we, you know, are able to sort of have a bigger understanding of there's any more people that need to be sent off or not. And then being proactive about actually getting your practice ready um, for being able to adopt the use of these telehealth items and, you know, educating patients. And I think we can't do enough to actually educate people about what they can all do around this whole thing of social distancing and social isolation and personal hygiene. And will that be a public health campaign that we'll start to see as well? Oh, I hope so. I'm hoping that that will be rolled out next week. I did notice this morning when I googled New South Wales COVID or something like that to find out what was happening, that there was a whole bunch of probably about five or six recommendations that looked like it. Um, the government had paid for that information to be coming up with that Google search. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yep. Yeah, but I think, you know, if you actually look at the pandemic strategy, putting out a public health campaign is right up high. They've been a bit slow uh, on that but uh, that should hopefully roll out next week. <laughs> so we will start to see the national pandemic plan play out in yep. Australia in the next week. Yeah. So we had to call the pandemic in order to do the stuff that everybody's talking about that we should be doing. That's exactly right. So And so now that we've called it, stuff will start to happen. Yep. That's. I think that's a good message is that everyone feels in healthcare that things have happened quite slowly but you know, from behind the scenes, having spoken to yourself and, and keeping up track with how things are going, 
you know, there's there's meetings happening all the time. There's a lot of public health involvement in terms of containment and making sure that we're really slowing the outbreak. And we are doing a lot of testing compared to other countries. And we are actively trying to make sure we've got clear messages. So um, I think that even though it's not ideal, it is one of those things where we've just come out of the bushfire season, we're still dealing with the impact that that had in our communities and now we're into a pandemic. So I think, like you said earlier, we've done pretty well and I'm hopeful that we'll start to see a lot of those policies play out in the next you know, month really quickly and, and widespread. Right, cool. So I might start with my highlight because I never start with my highlight when I host. So I'm just changing it up a little bit. And I wanted to start with my highlight because my highlight is a resource that I recently discovered, which would be really useful for patients. And the that is that Norman Swan, who is the who's a doctor as well as a journalist and hosts the health report has done two episodes on the health report specifically on coronavirus one was a panel that was actually recorded last year on how to prevent pandemics which is really interesting to listen to and gives a lot of insight into how we could have potentially prevented this pandemic and then the second one is about the coronavirus specifically and they're doing an offshoot podcast called coronacast where every day they're releasing an episode in relation to common questions from the public and it's really really useful because it's those sorts of questions about what do we do at the gym how long do we wash our hands for what kinds of hand wash do we need to be using and it provides really specific information about what the public is is interested in and um my understanding is it, it's evidence-based so they do some research into the questions and ask the right people in order to give the right advice so i'll start with beck and then we'll do charlotte at the end about the college based and, and new south wales health resources so i actually wanted to um, mention the phns and because specifically um, in our region the phn have actually been a really proactive source of information at the moment. They're usually quite good with their regular newsletters, but they've all been very focused on the virus recently over the last month and are holding um, regular meetings and regular updates. And I know there's been quite a lot of slack on some social media about them specifically with the distribution of PPE and I guess anybody who has that job would have an incredibly difficult job because of the absolute lack of PPE that's available but the local PHN that we have has been fantastic in contacting practices and disseminating information and if you're not um, regularly getting those emails jump onto your local PHN website and sign up to get them because they're and they will be passing on the advice that the college is giving them and that the Department of Health is giving them, but it will be a localised spin. Exactly. So, Charlotte, on to you. What kind of resources should GPs be looking out for and signing up to? Okay, so the the, the two that I'll sort of recommend in the at the sort of in the fall part of your brain to think about is making use of the daily email from the RACGP, which will provide you with links back to your own state and territory to make sure that you're up to date with things. Some of the states and territories are better at updating their websites daily um, and some are a little bit slow. So the advice that will be in the email will be the advice that they are giving, even if it isn't on their website. So um, that, that's just something to be mindful of. 
say I'm very fortunate in New South Wales, they do update their website every single day, they, um, which has been fantastic. The And so use that to help inform. There's also linked to that and on the college website, fantastically useful um, practice-specific documents to help um, through this in terms of, you know, notices for your the front of your surgery, um, patient information. There's a great fact sheet for doctors themselves. And I would just go to that. The second one is actually the health pathways. So it again is an evolving space, but certainly in New South Wales, most of the um, health pathways sites will access really, really useful um, sort of advice about what to do for each situation as well as what, as of next week, what your local services um, can do. And I'm very hopeful that all of the health pathways around the rest of Australia are similarly inclined. If you don't have um, health pathways in your site, I'm really sorry about that. What we are doing today as we speak is trying to give some flow charts that are the same as the health pathways as a paper form. The difficulty obviously with that is that they don't, we won't, um, they're a bit more time consuming in being able to update certain things. But they'll be, what, so what we'll do is try and just make them as the sort of the generic things that you need to know and where to go to resource for that information. Hopefully that's, yeah, but watch this space. We're doing some risk stratification tools and to, to sort of, again, help with assessment and trying to put out as many sheets to help with practice manager staff. And then the final plug is that we are starting a practice manager podcast that will be in the first place to help manage through this particular um, pandemic. And they will be short, sort of like 10 minutes, where we will be giving practical tips for practice managers and practice owners. And obviously, practice nurses can ring in as well for how we can actually deal with things at a more systematic um, practice level and make sure that everything is being done as efficiently as possible for everybody and maximise your ability to run your business. Thanks so much, Charlotte. I know that it's a busy day for you today looking at all of what's happening recently with more of our local transmission, having all of the meetings, the GP roundtables, meeting with all the different bodies and making sure that general practice in Australia is included in the discussion about how we can prevent the slow of the pandemic and actually getting really down to the greediness about what we need to know and how we can practically advise our patient populations and treat our patient populations over the next couple of months. Really appreciate you spending the time. Thanks for you guys for, for sort of joining with me as we sort of tried to summarise what's actually happening at the moment. We, I think it's a great opportunity to, again, fly the flag of what we as GPs can do, um, how we can do it sensibly and how we can do it with the patient at the centre of our care. Um, at the same time as being very mindful that we need to actually be able to run businesses and that we need to keep all of our staff safe as well as us. So, you know, there's a whole lot of balls for all of us um, at this time. And thank you, GPs around Australia, for being so fantastic in during a time which is very, I think, anxiety provoking with all of the different information and advice and not really knowing what's going to happen. And really, we still don't really know what's going to happen. And so we just have to do the best we can. And that's it. We'll sign off and we might do some more updates depending on how this is received. Um, it's slightly different from the Co-New South Wales Health webinar 
um, because it's it's purely focusing on general practice. So uh, watch this space. We may have some more episodes and we would appreciate your feedback at just a GP podcast at gmail.com.